Okay, this is episode three of Hellspan, and this is also going to be part three of Dr. Sachipana's The Circadian Code. On the first episode, we talked about circadian biology and what it, what it is. Second episode, we talked about how to hack our circadian biology. And on the third part, we're going to be talking about more specific stuff like gut health, metabolic syndrome, immunity and cancer, and also brain health. So he starts out this gut health section by talking about the different phases of digestion, like the cephalic phase, gastric phase, and intestinal phase. But what I wanted to start out talking about is this experiment that shows how our circadian biology and gut function are relatable. So this woman by the name of Carolina Escobar, she is a professor at the University of Mexico, and she wanted to do an experiment to find out how the clocks in different organs were affected in our circadian biology. So what she did was she measured the clocks in different organs of rats that had free access to food. And what she did was she changed the light-dark schedule in the rat's house as if they had traveled across six time zones. So let's say we're traveling from one part of the country to another. She set up a similar experiment in these rats. And what she found was that the gut clock was the slowest one to reset to the new time zone. And after she realized that the gut clock was the slowest one to reset, she set up another experiment. And when she changed the light-dark cycle, she also made the rats eat at the new local time. So if it was breakfast time, she would make the rats eat during that time. And what she saw that, what she realized was that the gut's clock took fewer days to adjust to the new time zone, and the, the rats were less prone to the discomfort of jet lag. So one of the things I talked about in episode one was how different signals can help reset our clock. And this experiment showed that Food can be one of the things that is resetting our clock. So this can pertain to your life. Let's say you're traveling from one time zone to another. If you eat during the day when you're supposed to, you're going to be transitioning a lot easier than if you were to, let's say, arrive and eat a late night snack. You're not aligning your circadian biology. So he states that eating at a time appropriate to the, to the new time zone is the best way to reset your gut clock. So just take that in mind. Uh, next time you're traveling and you want to avoid that jet lag, go ahead and have breakfast, but only when it's breakfast time at the new location that you're at. The next paragraph, we talk about uh, an anecdotal story where he talks about this man named Simon. And this man named Simon had total total anxiety and also was overweight. So he was overweight and he was told that his doc- by his doctor that he needed to lose 30 pounds and he was also experiencing occasional panic attacks. He was also extremely worried about his health. And what Dr. Sachin Panda told this guy, Simon, was just go ahead and restrict your food to 10 hours. So after after a few weeks of following a 10-hour time restricted eating, Simon noticed a marked reduction in his generalized anxiety and also panic attacks. He also noticed that he was able to sleep better. And he also reported that he was losing weight steadily, about one to two pounds a week. And Sachin Panda was not sure whether the improvement of his sleep or reduction in his waistline or how either of these affected the other. But his research did show that there was a gut-to-brain signal for relieving general anxiety overall. And he has this cool passage about a possible mechanism by which the gut-brain access actually works. So whenever we're digesting food, specifically fat, we need to release hormones uh, from our gut that helps digest the fat. 
And one of these hormones that's being released is called CCK or cholecystokinin. And when this hormone is released, it eventually gets broken down into a byproduct. And one of the products of CCK, the hormone that is released during digestion is CCK4. So this is a byproduct of CCK. And what happens when CCK, CCK4, the byproduct gets released, it can actually turn on the brain switch for anxiety, panic attack, and unnecessary fear. So this is one of the hypotheses that Dr. Sajjan Panda thinks this circadian biology disruption can affect our gut and brain access. So he states that we believe that a sleep-deprived individual or someone who goes to bed late is more likely to eat late, which triggers CCK production. If there is a defect in CCK breakdown and CCK4 accumulates in the blood, this might explain the increased incidences of anxiety in sleep-deprived people. So this is a possible hypothesis of how anxiety it, it can really start in the gut and affect the gut-brain access with the, this hormone CCK and its byproduct CCK4. So that, that was the anecdotal story of Simon and his weight loss and overall reduction in anxiety. And then the next, the next part I wanted to talk about the gut microbiome and how it's affecting our, or how our circadian biology is affecting our overall gut microbiome. So the field of the gut microbiome has expanded these past, you know, decade, two decades. And what Sachin Panda realizes that there are some species of microbes that flourish under fasting while other flourish during feeding. And really to have a, a healthy gut microbiome, one of the important things to do is maintaining a, maintain a diverse mix of gut microbes. That, that's what he kind of considers as you know, having the best gut health. And he states one of the ways to maintain a, gut, a good gut microbiome is to eat a diverse source of nutrition. That's one of the ways he states that you can maintain good gut health. The second thing you could do is, he states that we all we also know that when we experience poor sleep or conditions that stimulate jet lag or shift work, the gut microbiome composition is altered to a state that supports obesity. So the point is, there are there are so many microbes in our gut. I think the ratio is something like ten or a hundred to one in terms of our gut microbiome to our actual cells in our body. So we, we want to flourish the ones that are good for us and also you know, downregulate or inhibit the ones that are bad for us. And we can do that by diversifying our sources of nutrition and also having good quality sleep as well. So those are the two main things that can help in our, our gut microbiome. And to talk a, a little bit more about health we're going to be talking uh, gut health we're, we're going to be talking about the digestion part and he goes into this passage about GERD I've mentioned before that if you if you want to prevent GERD you can eat earlier in the day and eat in a time-restricted feeding window and he has this cascading effect of what happens when we develop GERD so a lot of people when they develop GERD gastroesophageal reflux disease they simply just take a proton pump inhibitor. So PPIs are the drugs used for GERD. They prevent uh, acid production in our stomach. But there are so many side effects of PPIs, and he goes into just a few of them in here. So the first one of taking PPIs is as stomach acid reduces, 
more bacteria can survive in the stomach and enter the small intestine, some of which can be pathogenic. So this is the, this is the SIBO. I think he's talking about the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. This can be a problem when we're taking acids. Another problem associated with PPIs are kidney disease, dementia, and then he also states that continuous use of these, of these drugs is also linked to changes in bone density, causing osteoporosis and bone fractures. So the point is, if we can avoid, if we can avoid getting GERD in the first place by taking care of ourselves, we won't have to be taking these PPIs. And if we don't take these PPIs, we're not going to be developing these terrible side effects like osteoporosis and uh, SIBO and, and uh, you know, poor kidney function. So that's that's the main point. I didn't want to talk about I didn't want to talk about this gut section too much. But what I really wanted to focus on was this next chapter about metabolic syndrome and metabolic health, because this is the, the stuff that interests me the most. So if you're not familiar with the term metabolic syndrome, I kind of describe it as this triad of, of, of it's, it's three main things. So one of them is abdominal obesity. Second one is a poor lipid panel. In other words, you have very low HDL, which is your good cholesterol and you have very high LDL and triglycerides. And the third component is having insulin resistance or fasting hyperglycemia. So if you if you listen to Ben Greenfield or Peter Atia, they mention this triad of metabolic syndrome, uh, insulin resistance, poor metabolic panel, and also truncal obesity. So that's kind of the definition of metabolic syndrome. And we're showing how a break in circadian code can lead to obesity, and also metabolic syndrome. So I talked a little bit about insulin before, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about it just because how important it is. So remember that as soon as you eat something, your pancreas must release insulin to help absorb the glucose into your cells. So he states that as soon as we eat something, our pancreas releases insulin, which does two important jobs for our metabolism. It helps absorb sugar form our blood into our liver, muscle, fat, and other tissues. And secondly, it signals these organs to convert some of the sugar to body fat. So we talked about the uptake of glucose, but another function of insulin is to turn some of the sugar into body fat. So anytime you're eating, again, you're, you're going to be releasing insulin. So if we're continuously spreading our calories over a long period of time, this insulin production is continuously active and it's telling our organs to keep making more body fat. And this is also leading to insulin resistance. So insulin resistance is type 2 diabetes. And what happens during insulin resistance is although our pancreas, specifically our beta cells, are making insulin, our body is not responding to its downstream signaling. Because what happens when you keep pounding the receptor, they just stop responding. And as he states here, we're, we're producing more and more fat. And he states that, you know, excess energy beyond what can be stored as glycogen is converted to fat and stored as fat in our adipose tissue or fat cells. So our adipocytes store these fat cells. But eventually, these adipocytes will reach full capacity. And what happens is our body tends to store fat in cells or organs that are not designed to store it. So instead of storing fat in our fat cells, 
we're actually going to be storing fat in our liver, muscles, pancreas. And this, again, could lead to chronic disease. And people think that fat and you know, overall adipocytes just sit there. But what people don't realize is that fat cells are actually metabolic, metabolically active. And this has been shown time and time again that what fat cells do is actually create inflammation in our body, specifically the visceral fat. So the visceral fat is the fat that's surrounding our organs. And fat is metabolic, metabolically active. It is actively secreting certain interleukins. Like I mentioned, interleukins are cytokines that create a, a vast variety of functions. And fat specifically is releasing interleukin-6, which is one of the interleukins that is a marker for inflammation. So fat is creating inflammation in our body. And the second way that fat is inflammatory is that when the cells, when the cells of when the fat cells become so big, they can actually outgrow their own blood supply, and these fat cells will undergo necrosis. And when necrosis happens in your body, you're going to get recruitment of inflammatory cells like macrophages and other cytokines that are going to come in and help clean up the debris, but at the same time cause inflammation. So in those two ways, fat is inflammatory. So if if we decrease the insulin signal we're going to be decreasing the fat making capacity making capacity in our body. And then we're also going to be talking about how disruption of the circadian code in our sleep is is contributed is a major contributor to obesity. So first, he states that reduced sleep confuses the brain hormones that regulate hunger. So there's two main hormones that are involved in hunger, leptin and ghrelin, those are the two main ones, there's a lot more. But what happens when we're not getting adequate sleep is that our brain upregulates the amount of ghrelin that's being produced and ghrelin makes you hungry if you want to remember it that way so we're essentially telling our body that we're not we're not full and we still can eat more and this is going to be contributing to our obesity now secondly sleep deprived confusion confuses the brain making us choose unhealthy foods over healthier options so we've all, we've all had that instance where we're sleep deprived and we just kind of reach for whatever you know, usually unhealthy foods because our brain, our brain, it primarily runs on glucose and ketones, but glucose is always going to be the first source. And so we're always looking what's going to give us the most glucose and sugar. It's going to be those unhealthy foods and compared to those healthy foods that you should be eating. And the third way that sleep disruption and circadian biology disruption is contributing to our obesity is that sleep deprived, sleep deprivation also makes us lethargic and less active. This is very obvious. If you're not, if you're tired, you're not going to have any capacity to work out at all. You're just going to end up laying around and that further contributes to excess energy and fat storage. So those are the three ways that sleep is really going to be affecting your, your, your chances of developing obesity and diabetes. Now he has this very cool chart and a few, a few, a few pages down and on the Y axis, he has this graph. And on the y-axis, you have blood glucose levels. On the x-axis, you have the morning day. And he's showing that blood glucose reaction of eating the same meal is, is different throughout the day. So the point is that let's say you have uh, a meal during the morning. Your blood glucose spike won't be as much as when you have it late at night. So if you look at the y-axis, you see this slowly increase in, in blood glucose level when you eat the same meal. So the the point I'm trying to make here is that 
a calorie is not a calorie. The second point I'm trying to make is that let's say you eat one calorie that is the same calorie of the same food. Because you eat it at a different time of day, your body won't process it the same. So whoever tells you a calorie is a calorie is is not right. And uh, even if you eat the same calorie food, it's going to be different. Your body's reaction is going to be different whether you eat it during the morning or late night. So that's something to remember. And again, I touched on this before, but I wanted to talk about why you should be eating these meals earlier in the day. So he states that the first, the circadian clock in the pancreas, as I mentioned, all organs have their own circadian clock. The first circadian clock in the pancreas, it programs insulin release to slow down during the, during the nighttime. So again, we are essentially metabolic, metabolically crippled when it comes to eating food late at night. And the second reason that we have a, a poor insulin response and blood glucose regulation late at night is because of the melatonin. So if you didn't listen to the second episode, one of the things I mentioned is that melatonin can actually act on the pancreas to further suppress insulin release at nighttime. So that can be one of the side effects of the melatonin that you take at night if you're eating late at night. And one last thing in this metabolic section that I want to talk about is time-restricted eating making metabolic syndrome medications more efficient. So he talks about the two very common medications taken by people who have uh, hyperlipidemia and also uh, insulin resistance. So the first-line treatment in type 2 diabetes is metformin. So metformin is a common drug, the most commonly prescribed drug in type 2, di- two, ty- type two diabetics. And in my opinion, metformin is the closest thing we have to the holy grail. By its activation of AMP kinase, it can trigger such a vast variety of healthy benefits in us. And what people don't realize is that time-restricted eating mimics the effects of metformin. So when you time-restrict eat, you're activating AMP kinase, which is just a signaling pathway that has a lot of benefits, like inhibition of hepatic gluconeogenesis and glycogen synthesis. It, in, it inhibits fatty acid oxidation, or it, uh, it increases fatty acid oxidation. And... If you time-restrict eat, you can get the same benefits of metformin and you can increase your fat burning during these times you're fasting. So that's in terms of the glucose and, ins- and ins- insulin and and this is talking about metformin. And the second drug we're talking about is statins. So statins is the most common drug prescribed for people who have high cholesterol. And the way statins work is inhibiting an enzyme called HMG-CoA reductase. And what Sachin Panda realizes is that under time-restricted eating, the rhythm in this enzyme improves. So we're talking about HMG-CoA reductase. And it naturally turns off for half of the day, which is essentially how statins work. And we can get the same benefit by, by time-restricted eating. So the point is, if you want to improve your lipid panel, if you want to improve your glucose regulation, time-restricted eating is the way to go if you're, if you're trying to avoid these drugs. Now, he states that the bottom line here is that time-restricted eating is not just about weight loss. It's about real health concerns and our overall health. So if you haven't tried time-restricted eating, again, highly recommend it. If you have tried it and it's worked for you, make sure to tell your family about it. And he states that you need to spread the love. And anyone at any age can benefit from living in a sink 
with their circadian code. So we talked about the gut health, we talked about metabolic syndrome and metabolism. The third section, we're going to be talking about immunity and cancer. So cancer has a lot of etiologies of it. He lists a few here on in the book, how cancer starts. There's no, there's no, you can't pinpoint it to one thing. There's a lot of different theories about cancer and how it got started, how it gets started in your body. For example, excess inflammation, free radical oxidative stress, uh, shortening of our telomeres, uh, poor immune system surveillance, um, cell cycle checkpoint dysregulation, DNA damage, um, and, and a lot of other things. So there's a lot of different causes of cancer. And some of them have circadian code or circadian component to them. So, for example, let's talk about the circadian uh, checkpoint. So, when a cell grows and proliferates, it has to go through cell, a cell cycle. So, if you've taken general biology, you know that cell goes through G1, S, G2 mitosis, right? So, the cell is growing, growing, and growing. But when it's growing, it needs to go through checkpoints. And he states that the circadian clock is, in a normal cell, make sure that many control steps are in place for the cell to grow only at certain times. So divide only once a day or every few days and repair itself more regularly. So one of the hallmarks of cancer is uncontrolled growth. So the circadian clock will help with the controlling the, 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 the cell cycle checkpoints and make sure that your cells won't grow when they, when they shouldn't be. So that's that's the cancer part. And as far as an experiment that he talks about, he states that can you simply change daily habits? Can can simp- simply changing daily habits reduce tumor growth as well? So we set up another experiment. And what he did was he placed a tiny tumor inside three groups of mice. So the first group lived under a normal light-dark cycle. And then he he had another group that was under a jet lag and shift working cycle. And what he found was that the tumors grew more aggressively in mice under the shift work and jet lag conditions. So this should be obvious. We know that if you're a shift worker and you do a, you have a lot of jet lag or your circadian code isn't where, where it should be, you're exposing yourself to diseases that diseases and cancer that can possibly happen. But what he saw was that in this third group so there was mice with a normal day and night clock. Then there was a group of mice that had a, a shift working cycle. And then in this third group, he had mice that were subjected to the same shift working or jet lag paradigm, but they were only given access to food for 12 hours. So they were essentially time restricted eating. And he saw that the tumor growth was reduced by as much as 20% in just seven days. So this is an experiment hinting at the idea that if we time restrict eat, we can actually shrink our tumor size and you know, evade the progression uh, to cancer. So that's something to think about when it comes to this experiment. So that's, a, that's, that's basically the end of the cancer. He talks a lot more about cancer and immunity, but I didn't want to dig too much too deep into it. I wanted to stick to the, the highlight points. And the very last section is all about brain health. So we talked about gut, we talked about metabolism, we talked about cancer, and now we're talking about our brain health. So 
a lot neuro neurodegenerative diseases are very rampant in the U- U.S. and in the world. And although we, he states that although we don't completely understand how brain brain function starts or develops, the mechanisms of these diseases primarily involve four themes. So there's four main reasons that we're developing these neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, etc. So the first one is a lack of emergence of new brain cells. So those are our neurons that replace damaged or dead brain cells. And this is causing a gradual decline in the number of healthy neurons. So it we used to we used to think that uh, three cells in our body are permanent cells, our skeletal, our cardiac, and our and our neurons are the three cells that actually don't divide. And but what we're really realizing more lately is that these neurons can actually we can actually make new neurons in a, in a process called adult neurogenesis. So that's that's something uh, that's the first that's the first uh, function that's being inhibited or the, the first process that's being affected. And the second process is poor wiring of neurons causing misconnection or miscommunication. The third is accumulation of damage or lack of sufficient repair of neurons. And the fourth is a brain chemical imbalance. And he shows that all, all these have a circadian clock involved in them. And I'll just talk about one, specifically the last one I mentioned, which was a brain chemical imbalance. So neurotransmitters in our brain have a lot of different functions. And our brain clocks are involved in making these brain chemicals at certain times of the, of the day. So when the clock is disrupted, the daily rhythm of brain chemical production becomes mistimed, as he puts it, or is stuck at a higher low level. And this is when we can develop uh, different brain diseases. So that's something to think about. If we can align our circadian biology, we can improve our, our brain health. Now, he, he goes into light again. We talked about light a lot in the last episode. And what I wanted to pinpoint in this light passage is talking about premature babies. So if you have a premature baby, you know that these babies are susceptible to a lot of different complications. And but we, what we don't realize is that premature babies are also exposed to the wrong types of light at the wrong time from the day they're born. So when they spend this time, their first days or weeks of life in this NICU, neonatal intensive care unit, the, the lights in the NICU are always on because the doctors need to check on them. So Sachin Panda is hypothesizing that with these lights being exp- with these babies being exposed to light all the time, we're disrupting our circadian biology and we're creating a lot of ongoing problems in health and uh, in, in brain development in these babies. So many of these babies actually grow up to have more ADHD, uh, autism, learning disabilities, uh, compromised language skills, and, and a lot more. And he talks about this interesting experiment where the researchers, they covered up these premature infants' crib for a few hours during the nighttime, which blocked the bright light. And what they saw was that these babies gained weight a lot faster, which is good. And basically, a faster body weight gain correlates with better overall brain health, and their heart was more stable. Not only that, these babies had better oxygen saturation in their blood and more and more melatonin. So this is simply letting them experience uh, a day-night cycle. And by experiencing these day-night cycles, they're having a, a profound effect compared to babies who are just continuously exposed in the NICU to, to, to blue light and to, to light in general. 
And this very last passage, we're talking about addressing light and sleep for optimal brain health. So one of the common themes of neurological diseases is sleep disruption. And he talks about Alzheimer's and also other neurodegenerative diseases. And what happens is having too much exposure to light at night reduces sleep, which is when most of the cleanup of damaged cell protein occurs. So there's two main pathogenic, you know, etiologies of Alzheimer's. The first one is the accumulation of tau inside our neurons. The second one is the accumulation of beta amyloid, which are located outside our neurons. These are causing a disruption in, in chemical transmission and overall brain health. And what we realized just pretty recently, actually, is the discovery of this system in our, in our brain called the glymphatic system. So you've all probably heard of lymphatic system, but we realized a new draining system in our brain, and it's coined the term glymphatic system. And what happens during, during the nighttime when we sleep is that the, the fluid in our brain that's clearing out happens a lot, it, it happens a lot faster when we're sleeping. So all those amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles that are occurring in Alzheimer's are being cleared out of our brain. And this is the point that Dr. Matthew Walker in, in Why We Sleep, his book Why We Sleep, is trying to emphasize is that there may be a, a causal relationship between sleep and certain neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. So if we can have good circadian biology and you know sleep well at night, we can help clear out these tangles and other other debris from our brain and help hopefully prevent dementia which is so common in the US. So that's that's basically the brain health section. And he he has a very last chapter about his circadian biology. So he takes you through a perfect circadian day. And he talks about what a normal day in Dr. Sachin Panda looks like from the time he wakes up to the time he goes to bed. And just like the rest of us, we, he re, we kind of realize that it's almost impossible to have a perfect circadian biology. So even for Sachin Panda, the guy who is the, the in the forefront of circadian biology, not everyone, not everyone can have this perfect cycle every day. And what he states is that we're shooting for perfection, but sometimes good enough has to do. And he states that I know that my health is in my hands and it's up to me to make the right choices as often as I can to reap the most rewards. And when I read this passage, it really reminded me of when I was in one of my rotations for medical school, one of my attendings says, your health is your responsibility. So it's really up to you to make these changes in your health. And although your circadian biology won't be perfect, although you won't exercise every day, you have to do as close as you can to that to really reap the most benefits of of having a good circadian biology. And I just wanted to end this end this podcast by talking about the last paragraph he talk he he's he's talking about. He states that quote, enhancing your circadian code isn't a miracle cure. But at the same time, I hope you've learned that there is no magic in pills either. By combining your doctor's recommendations with the information you've learned in this book, you will be doing everything in your power to get better and be healthy for life. My hope of course is that you will. So that is the end of this book. Uh, I I overall love this book. It was a very easy read. Even for someone who is not in the field of health or, or biology, this book is it's a very easy read. It's only 238 pages. And he, he really emphasizes the point of circadian biology. And this book really gave me a new appreciation for, 
new appreciation for circadian biology. My opinion is that within the next decade or two, gut health and circadian biology will be the two fields in science that are going to absolutely explode. So if you want to learn more about circadian biology, you can go to his website at mycircadianclock.org and I can leave a link down below. And I recommend you reading this book and also just uh, thinking about next time about just aligning your circadian biology to give you better all health. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast and this book. And this is Healthspan. And until next time.